0: Hello, I'm Pastor Rob Spencer of Church United. We are excited because God is at work in our community of Christ followers, and it is my hope that God works in your life as you listen to this message today. If you'd like more information about Church United, please visit us at churchunited.family. Today's story it, you'll find it in 2nd Samuel. So, blow the dust off of the Old Testament and turn to 2nd Samuel chapter 9 and what i want to do is i want to read through the story first to familiarize us with him and david said is there still anyone left in the house of saul that i might show him kindness for jonathan's sake now there was a servant in the house of saul whose name was ziba and they and they called him to david and the king said to him are you ziba and he said i am your servant and the king said is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show kind, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, "There is still a son of Jonathan; he is crippled in his feet." The king said to him, "Where is he?" And Ziba said to the king, "He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar." The king sent and brought him to the house uh, from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. At Lodibar, and Mephebesheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, "Mephebesheth." And he answered, "Behold, I am your servant." And David said to him, "Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to you all the lands of Saul, your father and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said, uh, called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said, All that belongs to Saul and all of his house I will give to your master's grandson, and you and your sons <clears throat> and your servants "...shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce. And, the, and your master's grandson will have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat with my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the, uh, David's table like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son. His name was Micah. And all who lived in, with, in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived with, uh, in Jerusalem. And he ate always at the, king of the uh, king's table. And he was lame in both feet. <clears throat> so <clears throat> what I'd like for us to do this morning, let's take a trip back in time a little time travel and see what it was like. So, in order to do that, let's crank up the DeLorean, get that flux capacitor up and operational, and, three, and set it back 3,000 years to the time of David and, and Israel. David, at this point, has conquered all of his enemies. He he has he would become the king, and in a time of brutal People of wars and, and ravages, and we find David, and we find him now in a time when he has done all that he needs, wants to do, and he's sitting back, and he begins to think back on his life, and he remembers a time that he made a promise to his best friend, Jonathan. So if we can slip back one more time to 1 Samuel, verse 20, and we'll see this promise, this covenant that Jonathan committed, Jonathan and David made to one another. And Jonathan says in um, uh, 1 Samuel 20, verse 13, "Say, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every enemy of, of David, from the face of the earth so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying may the Lord require it of the hands of David's enemies and Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him because he loved him as he loved his own life so to understand what's going on we have this uh, covenant between the two now this covenant was made at a time when David was still young and Jonathan's father, King Saul, was trying to kill him. The the relationship between Saul and David was a very contentious relationship. Um, It all began back when David was first brought forward. He had already been anointed anointed king by Samuel. He was brought forward. He came into a time of battle, and there stood uh, Goliath. And as a young man, he he killed Goliath. That was fine. uh, Saul thought it was a good thing. Later on, David would begin to fight in the battles alongside Saul. He did a really good job of it. And there was a time when they were coming back from battle, and the people began to sing a song. Look with me at uh, 1 Samuel 18, and we'll see this. As they were coming home, when David would return from striking down the Philistines, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women began to sing another song as they celebrated. And they sang, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. Um, at this saying and he eyed David from that day on. Jealousy reigned in his life that he tried to kill David on a number of occasions. At this point uh, David remembers back to this covenant. He remembers that he had made this covenant to uh, Jonathan when Jonathan was doing everything he could to save David from uh, Saul's wrath. So back to the story we, we see David, he's reminiscing about this. So he looks in and he says, Is there anybody left that I can show kindness, that I can fulfill this covenant, this promise that I made to my best friend? Well, it turns out there was a guy in, the, in a palace who knew of somebody. His name is Zeba. And if you look at what he says, um, he, he comes out and says, Is asked, Do you know of anybody? And he said, Yeah, I know somebody, but his feet are crippled. In other words, he's saying, you know, don't worry about him, king. He's a nothing. He's nobody. You don't have to worry about him. He's trying to protect Jonathan's son from the king. Well, David said, let's move on. Bring him here because I want to do something nice for him. I want to help him out. And so Mephibosheth is brought forward to the king. You might wonder, okay, what happened to Mephibosheth? Why is, his, why is he crippled in both of his feet? Look back with me again to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And there we're first introduced to Mephibosheth. And it says that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel, from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame and his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, kind of an odd story. What was going through the mind of the nurse that she would be so clumsy as to drop the boy and hurt him so badly? At that time, it was customary that when one king was dethroned and a new king came in, that new king would eliminate the entire family of the former king so as to eliminate any possible threat to his throne and his reign. This nurse understood that custom. And so in her haste to save Mephibosheth, something happened. She dropped him or whatever, and his feet were permanently uh, crippled. So he spent the rest of his life um, with two feet that didn't work right. So Mephibosheth is brought before the king. Now think of this for a minute. You're Mephibosheth. You understand what has happened. Your father, who was the son of King Saul, is dead. King Saul is dead. You know that you are on the chopping block. There's a potential here, and you have spent your entire life hiding from the king so to preserve yourself. Well, we look in there, and we find him. Where do we find him? We find him in a town called Lodabar. All right? means nothing. But what does Lodabar mean? It means a barren place. So what we find is that Mephibosheth is in a place called barren, on the far side of the kingdom, as far away from the king as he could possibly get, in an obscure place trying to stay away from the king. So that's where we find him. So David brings him to the palace. And what is Mephibosheth's reaction when he sees the king brought into the palace? He falls flat on his face in front of him. When I read that, I, read, I remember, you know, recall reading about Isaiah and John. And there are visions of being in the throne room of God. And the reaction is the same. They fall flat on their face in front of God. Mephibosheth did so under, in great fear of his own life. Isaiah and John fear for them, their life, but in awe of being there. So he's there, and what is David's reaction? This is amazing. He reaches down to him, and he says, Do not fear. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. He's laying there trembling on on the floor. And David says, don't fear. I got to looking this up a little bit. Do you realize that in the Bible, the, term, the phrase, don't fear, do not be afraid, fear not, is, over, is repeated over 300 times. It's kind of an important thing. God wants us to realize we don't have to be afraid of him. Just as David was trying to convey to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. So he brings him in and lifts him back up and calms his fears, shows him amazing grace. He didn't have to do this. Every other king out there would have sit and heard about him and lopped his head off, and that's what he was afraid of. When he got there, he was thinking, I wonder how long it's going to be before my head is removed from my shoulders. But it didn't happen because of David's great love for Jonathan in his great grace. It's an amazing story of grace, and it's one that I really enjoy. So, what can we learn from this little obscure story? I find a few lessons in it. Um, David was prompted by great love for his uh, friend Jonathan and his desire to, to fulfill his covenant promise. God has done the same thing and has shown us that through his son Jesus Christ. He has made a promise to us, and he will fulfill that promise. He has given us that great hope. David showed unconditional love to Mephibosheth by adopting him into the family and making him a son. We, too, have been adopted into into God's family. We are his children. Um, We read earlier in, um, in Ephesians, and I got myself in a mess here, Okay, and it says in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have saved, been saved and raised us up in him and seated us at the right, uh, at, with him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus. We have been adopted into the family. Just as David adopted Mephibosheth into the family. We too have been adopted into the Lord's family. David found Mephibosheth in his weakness. In a place of despair. In a barren place. That's where he finds us. That's where God finds us. But the question is do you stay in that place? Do you stay in that barren wilderness away from God? Or do you accept His hand of grace and come forward and live with Him as His adopted children? That's the question that we all have to answer. God has offered that, He has given us that opportunity. Reach out and take it. Mephibosheth did, and he lived the rest of his life eating at the table of the king. We have been given that opportunity as well to live with him um, and to eat at his table. Jesus made that promise back in Luke 22, 30. He said that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We're, we have that opportunity. We're going to do that. We're going to be there. Um, and we have that wonderful opportunity um, to accept that promise of do not fear. Um, What about you? Are you hiding? Are you still running from God? Are you still trying to find a way around it? Stop. Accept his promise. Accept his gift. Another lesson that we learn from this is that David sought out Mephibosheth. He didn't leave him there. He went looking for him. God does the same thing for us. He searches us out. He hunts us down. And to bring us in, if we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as Some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All it's kind of all inclusive. That's all of us. He wants everyone to come to that. Pastor David Barnhouse is uh, quoted as saying that love that reaches up is worship. Love that reaches out is affection. But love that stoops—that's grace. Jesus left the throne room of God. The beauty, the glory, the majesty of the throne room of God to step down into our Lodabar, our barren place. He stooped to us to give us that promise of eternal life at His side. Have you accepted that promise? If you haven't, There's no better time than today. After the service, there's going to be someone at the prayer banner if you want to go back there and pray. Even right now, if you want, grab somebody go back there. We'll pray with you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, what are you doing with it? Are you reaching out to those around? Do you walk around with arrogance, or do you walk around with the joy of God? What kind of church are we? Are we a kind of church that reaches down, stoops down, goes to Lodabar to bring out the sin-filled refugees and bring them to the table? Or are we going to be a church that's so comfortable in this fancy new place that we have that we don't think about reaching out the doors? I hope we're the former, and not the latter. Reach out to those around you in love and mercy of God. Think about this scene for a minute. <clears throat> got the throne room of King David. He's sitting there, got the table out front of him. spread with all this wonder. Got his children around the table. Got a couple of his officers with him. And then you hear this scuffle and clump, scuffle, clump, clump. As Mephibosheth comes in on crutches, dragging his crippled feet. Then he sits down at the table and the table covers his handicap, his sin. It's going to be us. At the throne room of God, we'll sit down there and all the things that we have had, all the things that we have been, all the things that we have done will be covered by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious day that you've given us. We thank you for your amazing love. We thank you, Lord, that you have stooped down in your grace, in your love, in your compassion for us and that you have reached down and said, my child, do not fear. I adopt you as one of my own. Help us to love you, Lord, with all of our hearts. Help us to reach out to the people around us with the compassion that you have shown us and turn our hearts to you. We praise you and thank you for all these things in the amazing and powerful name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
1: This thing. yeah? All right. Uh, so as Pastor Rob said, my name is David Hagenseeker. I'm an intern at Village Church in Churchville, uh, and I go to Spurgeon College. It's in Kansas City, uh, and this was my first year there. I transferred there, and so doing that, I had to take some basic classes, uh, one of which is the Old, is Old Testament survey. Uh, I love the Old Testament. I'll say that straight up. I love it. I love history, and I love Uh, ancient history mostly, and so seeing like the Old Testament timeline and ancient history, how they like mix and stuff, that's really cool to me. That being said, Old Testament survey was probably the easiest class to get distracted in or to just give up and fall asleep. Uh, (laughs) The professor had a monotone voice. Uh, Everybody was either eating lunch or had just eaten lunch, so this room smelled like food, and that's great. Uh, And I had a huge window right next to me that I would always look out and out into. Uh, So all this made for a perfect storm for ADHD David uh, to either get distracted or to give up and fall asleep. Uh, (laughs) But this story really caught my attention because of the way God's love is shown. Um, So today I'm going to be going through the story of Hosea. And like Rob said, uh, Robert I think corrected Rob in the video, some of these stories aren't classics. Uh, You may not have heard this story even though there's an entire book written about it. Uh, but what I love about it is that this, like, it's this like bright neon sign pointing to the gospel. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he often refers to as Ephraim, and he prophesied just before the uh, Assyrian Empire came and conquered them. Uh, so, if you want to look in your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea one through three, like the chapters one through three. Skipping through there, it's going to be the basic storyline. So Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. God had prophets do a lot of strange things, but this one sticks out from all the others because it obviously is very personal to Hosea. He marries a woman. Her name was Gomer. And he has three kids with Gomer, Uh, The first child's name was Jezreel, and it says in verse 1, uh, he names him Jezreel because for in a little while I will bring bloodshed to the house of Jezreel, to the house of Jehu, and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And the second child, uh, in verse 6, God tells Hosea to name her lo Rahama, which means no mercy, because God says, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, and I will take them away. And in the third child, in verse 9, God tells Hosea to name him lo which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So let me just say this. Hosea is not going to Disney World. He's not getting his kid like a keychain with their name on it or a mug. He's not finding a Coke bottle with their name on it. There's some strange names on those Coke bottles now, but like he's not finding them. I can tell you that. Uh, so then in chapter 2, Hosea brings two, pro- well, one prophecy and like two parts about Israel. And the first one, Uh, verses 1 through 13, he prophesies that Israel has been unfaithful to their God, that they have abandoned him and continue to look to other gods and to other nations for their protection. Because of this, God tells Israel that they will be destroyed. He promises them that they will reap reap the consequences of their actions and they won't escape the the consequences of their actions. So... (laughs) uh, In this prophecy, we see God in his righteous anger. We see a God that is angry and completely justified in this anger because Israel has constantly walked away from him and only cries out to him in their most desperate times. All of this, while God has remained steadfast in his love to them, Israel had forgotten the Lord. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 through 23, we see the relentless love of God we see while Israel had forgotten the Lord, the Lord hadn't forgotten Israel. In the midst of his righteous anger, we see God showing mercy to his people. Hosea prophesies of a future uh, where God will call his people back. Uh, uh, Chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There's going to be a new covenant made, a marriage covenant between God and his people. Verses 19 and 20 say, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. And then we go to chapter 3, and this reflects this redeeming love of God, because God tells Hosea, in verse one, then the Lord said to me, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. God doesn't like raisin cakes, just in case you guys <laughs> want to know. Uh, so, and there's more to that, but Gomer's unfaithfulness in the beginning of chapter three reminds us of the present issue of Israel's unfaithfulness. While there's a promise of future hope and redemption, there's still sin abounding, But just as God promises to redeem Israel, Hosea redeems Gomer. Hosea goes and buys her back, and verses 2 and 3 say, I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way toward you. So often the God of the Old Testament is seen as this mean, angry God who punishes the innocent and has no room for mercy. However, in Hosea, we see a God that, yes, sees this evident sin that is in Israel and casts judgment on that sin, but we also see a loving God relent of that judgment and shows mercy to his people. Now, to some, this might look like God changing his mind or being fickle about his decisions, but when we read the story and we read later on Hosea, we see that it's a love that he calls them to repentance. Later on in uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4 you don't have to turn there but he says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son Israel called to the Egyptians even as Israel was leaving them they kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols it was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the hand but they never knew that I healed them I led them with human cords with ropes of love to them I was like the one who eases the yoke from their jaws I bent down to give them food. Here we see the love of God as a father to Israel, recalling their rising up as a nation in their beginning. Yet, as a father does, the Lord lets, lets Israel feel some of the results of their disobedience. He says in verse uh, five and seven through seven, uh, he, ends up, he says to them that Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be your king because you have refused to repent, to repent. You are bent from turning from me. But then in in 8 and 9, he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. And yet again, we see the the Lord's mercy at work. His faithfulness in the midst of their unfaithfulness The same God that showed love and mercy to the Israelites in their rebellion is showing love, mercy, and grace in the midst of our rebellion. We, like Gomer in Israel, are not satisfied with what we've been given. God gave us a way to to be with him for eternity, but we have rejected it by living in sin. Romans 3, 9, 12 tells us that we want nothing to do with God, that we don't do good and that we do not seek him. And while we don't seek God in our life, we, we often look to other things for something that satisfies. We look to other people or we look to ourselves, something that we can cling to with certainty. We're just like Israel. They looked to other nations and other gods for certainty. They wanted kings because other nations had kings. They wanted, they wanted to worship the other pagan gods for the earthly pleasures that those other earthly gods, the false gods, promised. They wanted big militaries because they saw other bigger nations with bigger militaries. But because we live in a fallen world full of disappointments and uncertainty, we can never find that. Others will fail us, and we'll fail fail ourselves. Assyria eventually turned on Israel and took them into captivity. Their kings had failed them, their pagan gods had failed them, and their military alliances had betrayed and destroyed them. In today's world, we have so many things that we try to find our identity in. We seek to satisfy our desires for meaning, identity, and security. We think making X amount of money and doing everything we can to make that extra dime will give us meaning, identity, and security. We think making the grade on the exam or getting the perfect GPA will give us some kind of meaningful satisfaction that will give us meaning, identity, and security. We think the perfect job with the perfect benefits will offer us meaning, identity, and security. But as so many people know, all of it can be gone like that. As so many people know, they can get to this place where they feel like they have everything they've ever wanted, but yet it's not enough. This leads to a crisis of meaning, identity, and security. Just like the Israelites, we look to ourselves or we look to others to fulfill those needs, and this will always lead to disappointment. At my school, we have keys to get into our dorms and into our hall. And if we lose those keys, we get fined. So if we have to call our RA to let us into the building or they have to come bring us our key, we get fined. The problem is I lose things a lot. And so when I walk into my dorm room, I'll probably, I normally like throw my key on the couch or on my desk or I'll end up falling behind my bed. Um, and then the other problem is I wake up late for class. I'll, I'll wait till like the last second to get up. And so this leads to me, like, running around the room and trying to find my key, because I can't be late for class, but I can't get fined, because that's $10, and that's a Chipotle meal, and I love Chipotle, and, like, being late to class is not worth me not getting to Chipotle. So (laughs) here I am running around my room trying to find my keys, and my roommate, Jonham, calls out my name. He's like, hey, Dave, David, hey, David, David, Dave. And like, obviously I don't respond because I'm busy trying to find my keys. Like, I'm getting angry at this point, but yet, even when I don't respond, he continues to incessantly call my name. Like, he can't take a hint. And so when I finally get tired of it, and like, I can't take it anymore, I turn around, I go, what do you want? And there he is, standing with my keys. And I think that illustrates how we are with God. We look for these things as he calls to us, And we don't have time for him. So we turn away and we look and we look and we get angrier and angrier when we can't find it. Yet he's always standing there holding what we're looking for. He's offered us his son. And even though we walked away from him, he has sent his son to offer up the price for our freedom. Freedom from death, which is the consequence of our rebellion. And that's the gospel, that even in our rebellion, God would love us so much that he would send his son to pay the price for our freedom. It is through God that we find our meaning, identity, and security. In God, we find identity as children as his children, just as uh, John 1, 12 says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. In God we find meaning. To fear God and keep his commands, just as Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen says, to tell others about him, just as we are commanded in the Great Commission, and to love one another, just as Jesus instructed us in John thirteen twenty five. In God, we find security. We have a future hope revealed to us in uh, Revelation 21, verses three and four. And this is probably, this is the most secure thing that I have found in the Bible. Because it says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There's security. There's a future hope. God told Israel that he will not show mercy, yet he relented of his anger and showed mercy. He told them that they will no longer be his people, but yet he cried out to them to return to him. We see a future where God will dwell with his people and we are included in that. Even as rebellious sinners, God has called us to return to him. Just as Hosea promises fidelity to Gomer, even after she left him for another man and he had to go buy her back from him, God has left the flock to find us and has bought us back and has pledged his fidelity to his children. And so now what? Well, first, we as believers get to live in the love of God, and I think that's like the coolest feeling in the world because he's offered us all that we want. He's offered us meaning. He's offered us identity, and he's offered us security. As believers, we have been given meaning. We've been given what we're supposed to do, to love God and to love others and to follow his commands, all of which include going and telling others what he has done to get them back. And lastly, if you're not a believer, you've been given, you've been offered meaning, identity, and security. You've been offered all these things not because of what you've done to deserve them, but because of, out of God's love for you. You can continue to look in these places that they're, they're, it's not there. You can continue to look there, but you're not gonna find it. You're not gonna find the thing that satisfies. But if you turn to God, he's there holding everything you want.